Hello, this is Feps Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies from Brussels. My name is Laszlo Andor. I'm the Secretary General of Feps, and I welcome today Professor Björn Hacker in Brussels in our headquarters. Welcome, Björn. Uh, Professor Hacker is the Professor of the University of Applied Sciences in Berlin, also known as the HTW University, if you are looking on the map uh, for this uh, institution, and an author who has been very prolific uh, about the questions of social Europe. Björn, you have been written a lot, and you honored FEPS um, by delivering to us a primer, an introductory booklet about um, questions of uh, social Europe. And um, I would like to discuss this uh, with you uh, today um, because um, you know, just um, a few months after uh, printing this book, it's already a big success. A lot of people are looking for it. And we also heard it back um, from different countries that they would like to have a, a, a version in their own language. We heard it back from uh, professors that they really would like to use it in education, in higher education more specifically. So uh, I, I think um, we have an excellent material um, uh, to discuss. Um, but my first question is exactly about this. Since you have written so much about uh, the European social policy, um, how does it differ to you uh, when uh, you need to write a more pedagogical, more introductory uh, text on the same subject? Yeah, thank you. It was really a pleasure when, Fabs, when you were asking me to write this uh, introductory um, book, because you had to go back to the to the grounds, back to the details of European integration and asking uh, what is social Europe? Because social Europe is difficult to catch. If you read about climate change, if you read about uh, economics, if you read about migration, it's not not easier, but you know what to write about. Social Europe is everything. Social Europe is in the member states. Social Europe is on a supranational level. Uh, social Europe is kind of everywhere. And because it's not easy to catch, it was a good uh, work then to, to go back really to the details and to the beginnings of Social Europe. Because in the beginnings of European integration, Social Europe was really only uh, part of the economic integration process. But over the years, over the decades, Social Europe developed and developed further and we had some visions. Uh, I put the vision as well in the title of the book. Um, we had some visions. Some of them where uh, uh, some of them um, came to light and others not. And um, so it was really good to, to go back and and map a bit the details of social Europe, to map a bit uh, what belongs to the welfare state, what belongs to the supranational level, and where is a thin line between social integration and economic integration. Mm -hmm. um, as you mentioned, you go back to uh, history. A lot of people would go back to Jacques Delors, but you went back to Willy Brandt, to the 1970s. Can exactly. you tell me more about this? <laughs> exactly. Uh, if you're a social democrat, it's always easy. If you don't know where exactly to start, you go back to Willy Brandt. Uh, and yeah, the interesting thing is um, that Willy Brandt already in the beginning of the 70s uh, had the idea of a European social union. And in my point of view, this is really nearly forgotten uh, that this concept of uh, it was a more Keynesian inspired concept of steering not only the economy, but steering as well a bit um, uh, social and employment issues. 
And this concept of a European Social Union from 1972 and 1973, uh, it was a vast concept really to to put a social union beside the, at the time, planned monetary and economic union. Of course, this first attempt of an economic and monetary union uh, didn't work out, so did not uh, the social union. But I think from today's point of view, it's important to get back to see what was planned once, what was one of the first visions for social Europe, and where do we stand now? And of course, later you mentioned Jacques Delors, another very big father figure of social Europe. Um, he revamped some ideas of Willy Brandt uh, uh, some years later in the 80s. Uh, and he was successful, of course, with his idea of social dimension and a European social model, which is totally different to an, let's say, American model, a liberal uh, model um, of the market and the social. Yes, let's elaborate a little bit on uh, Jacques Delors. Um, indeed, uh, because in practice, uh, this is a very important uh, uh, beginning for uh, the, 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 the architecture of uh, the European uh, integration. And indeed, uh, I think what everybody needs to acknowledge is that for Delors, developing the single market and the social dimension was a simultaneous task. And, um, and, and I think um, this is a very important lesson. Uh, to the extent that also the study of the social Europe needs to pay attention to the economy and the social policy somehow in an interconnected way. Um, it's, not a, it's, it's not a unique approach, right? Why do you think this approach to kind of combine the economic and social analysis is uh, the right way? It's a conditionality, and it was the law who mentioned that this is a conditionality. If you want to progress with a single market, if you want to progress with a new attempt at the time of, uh, for uh, economic and monetary union, we need as well to increase the social integration. Because if not, we have uh, problems between uh, far-reaching economic integration and left behind social integration, left behind and left to the capitals of the member states, to the governments. And uh, this is, creates new problems, of course, in many fields, in employment, um, uh, in, in many social affairs. Uh, and um, we, we have seen in the last decades, of course, uh, many problems of social dumping, uh, for example, if you look at wages, if you look at taxes, uh, if you look also at social spending. Um, so a kind of um, yeah, problems created in the single market, in the monetary union on these issues and dumping processes uh, by some member states. Um, and uh, that was possible because we didn't have common regulation on these things and not enough cooperation. And it was indeed Delors who said, uh, you can't fall in love with the single market. So it's something where democracy is welcomes in because people are say, okay, we have a single market, we have free movement, we have the euro as a currency, but you don't fall in love with it. Mm -hmm. uh, so you want to have social integration as well. And if the national welfare state is not any more uh, uh, is not the one who can, in a globalized world, really protect the people, then they may my, uh, maybe um, uh, vote for, for the extreme right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's a very interesting uh, chapter in the book, um, which uh, explains the historic evolution of the European uh, integration social dimension. 
And after the time of the law and the creation of the single market, when, as you said, um, a lot of important legislation is launched, the next important stage is um, the introduction of the so-called Lisbon strategy, mm-hmm. where the European policy making shifts to a, a very wide uh, spectrum of policy coordination. Uh, maybe this is not so much talked about today as it was five, ten, or fifteen years ago. Why can you can you perhaps uh, highlight the importance of this? Nevertheless, of course, I worked a lot on the uh, governance and um, uh, on these coordination efforts because that was the point. Then Jacques Delors' idea in the eighties and the beginning of the nineties, um, everybody said, "Okay, that's great." And the nineties, we had this. EU euphoria, everybody wanted more uh, integration. And then in the mid of the 90s, member states said, oh, well, that is too much sovereignty going to Brussels and Strasbourg. So we have to keep that somehow for us. And that was also true as well for employment and social policies and, of course, uh, economic policies as well. And instead, we uh, managed in the European Union to develop, as I said, with the single market uh, and with the monetary union, um, creating a sort of competition uh, in um, uh, not only competition between enterprises, but competition between welfare states. Which welfare state is best adapted um, to the common European integration model and um, economic integration model in that uh, in that regard? And at the time when member states did not want to uh, give more sovereignty to Brussels and to Strasbourg, There was born this idea with the European employment strategy and later the open method of coordination. You mentioned the Lisbon strategy and all these 10-year strategies, uh, which came later, um, to say, then, if not integrate, let's cooperate. Mm -hmm. And that was the idea of policy cooperation. And at the time, I remember, um, that was really a great idea. We don't have to have new regulations and directives and so on. Um, So let's just pick some objectives, we find some objectives between the member states, and then everybody goes home to its capitals in the European Union, and we try to follow these, um, the policies towards reaching these goals. The problem is, we did not have the sanctions, we did not have any rewards for fulfilling the objectives. So it was a lot of cheap talk at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem was this, Yeah, this cooperation of policies, I said it's a kind of makeshift bridge Mm -hmm. and it was not able to um, to really bring together this far reaching economic integration on the one hand and the social integration, the market correcting and market shaping integration on the other hand. And therefore, in the last years, you're absolutely right. We don't hear so much uh, about this coordination tool. Today, many are talking about distributional issues because these are more hands-on, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, let's jump um, to uh, the current chapter. And I think we are in a phase um, which was opened um, in 2017 with the adoption of the European Pillar of Social Rights. I think that's a very important milestone. Everybody speaks about the significance of um, the adoption of this social pillar. And um, uh, there is, on the other hand, a question. 
um, which is, um, you know, how significant change this has brought about. Is it really a game changer? Is it, uh, again, another chapter in, you know, nice paperwork and uh, talking differently about the European social dimension? Or it has also managed to bring about change in practice? Yeah, well, the European pillar of social rights is definitely a uh, Uh, a milestone in European social integration. Um, its proclamation in 2017, uh, we have to go back uh, why it was proclaimed in that year, uh, because it followed 10 years, nearly 10 years of austerity policies in the European Union. After the financial crisis, the global financial and economic crisis, and then especially after the Euro crisis, um, many people and many governments and many people working for the European in institutions have seen that we somehow entered a wrong way with the idea of austerity, with the idea of um, trying to get out of the economic crisis by austerity measures. And we said, okay, we have done a lot in that regard for the economy, for the banks, for example, in the financial crisis and for the budgets, the public budgets, bring the uh, public budgets out of the deficit and so on. Um, uh, but we lost the social and employment issues completely on the European scale. And there was a kind of pressure, of course, uh, and the pressure came from, from different regards, from the public, from uh, many politicians, Uh, from the trade unions, of course, saying we have to take care that we not only develop the economy out of a crisis, but that we have an eye as well on the social issues, on the poverty, for example, mm -hmm. on the unemployment. Uh, the, the young unemployed uh, rates were really, really high at the time. And then we had uh, the European Pillar of Social Rights, and you were asking me um, if this is now today to be seen as a game changer. And I would say, yes, it is, because the European pillar of social rights is today our compass and um, it is here to stay. This pillar of social rights, everyone who is talking about European social policy has to reference the European pillar of social rights and its 20 principles. The interesting thing is that these pillar of social rights, the 20 principles, It's just a declaration of intent. Mm. It does not belong to the treaties. Uh, and um, in the preamble, it said it's partly uh, the right of the member states and partly the right of the European Union to further develop and implement uh, these, um, uh, these standards. But nevertheless, you will find it in every discussion, in every doc document, and therefore it's a great tool to bring social Europe back to the political agenda. Um, as you uh, highlight the importance of this um, uh, document, the social pillar, um, we should not forget mentioning um, the, uh, the, the steps which were made afterwards, the so-called action plan in 2021, which indeed ensured that the social pillar is not about talking the talk, but also walking the walk, if we can use this um, expression. And this action plan also brought back what already existed before, but in a kind of more uh, clear way, um, numerical targets to increase the employment rate, to increase uh, the number of workers uh, who have access to lifelong learning, uh, also to reduce um, the number of people living in poverty or social exclusion. And um, of course, this is a, a, a little bit of a complex methodology, but I think it's uh, important because um, it demonstrates that somehow you have to be able to measure the outcome, right? That there is a lot of paperwork in Brussels, 
there is a lot of talk at the political level, but at the end of the day, what counts is what the citizens feel, whether they believe that you know the European Union is something that gives concrete outcomes uh, for them in their daily life. And, and I think that's a tricky question. Uh, to what extent uh, the European citizens really feel that uh, the European Union has um, a serious social policy. I think we can measure it. And um, of course, this is important. I mean, you as a commissioner for social affairs, you were introducing the nucleus of a social scoreboard. Yes. And we have today this social scoreboard with many, much more indicators. Because at the time when we when you introduced these first, I think it was five or so, five indicators at the time, um, we had um, only the numerical benchmarks for the budgetary things and the budgetary issues. And then, of course, we had the macroeconomic scoreboard, which went a lot beyond. And you try to introduce very well the employment figures there and the unemployment figures. Uh, and then um, with the European pillar of social rights, it really get broader. And now we have this, I think today, these are 17 indicators uh, who really measure where we are, where we stand in the European Union regarding employment, regarding uh, the risk of poverty, regarding uh, the gender gap, uh, regarding educational issues. And this is this is really important to see on to tell people where we stand, where their own country stands in comparison to other countries. So are we good or are we bad? Are we in the middle? Are we in the average over or be below the average? My problem with this is that it is not really discussed in many member states' political mm. spheres. So I think we would need more discussions on these compared to the economic sphere, the budgetary issues. This is discussed everywhere. If your budget is not in line with the European regulations of the Stability and Growth Pact, with the economic governance framework, then of course all the media is going, okay, what have you done wrong? What has the government done wrong? What should we do? Uh, should we invest more? Should we invest less? Uh, uh, should we do austerity or not? But on the social issues and employment and educational issues, we have all the numbers now, mm -hmm. but it's not discussed. So I want not only discussions in the European Parliament, I think discussions in the national parliaments on these social scoreboard indicators would be really, really important to implement the pillar. And what you mentioned, the, uh, the social summit in Porto, it helped a bit to set three overarching indicators uh, and, and goals for these indicators um, until 2030 to tell member states we want to arrive there. And every member state has to say, okay, and in that Uh, average thing, where is your own country uh, in the next 10 years? And um, I think this is really important to boost national debates on these. So I would like to see more of these benchmarks, because the problem is if you only have three benchmarks, and on the other hand, these dominant benchmarks of uh, economic integration, of budgetary issues, um, then maybe the social things, uh, the social issues could get lost. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you discussed the future a little bit, uh, because um, I think um, we, we should not close our um, conversation without discussing a little bit more the future of policy making. Uh, because um, in 24, I think we are uh, closing a cycle which was very, very productive 
from the point of view of EU social policy with um, uh, achievements like uh, a directive on minimum wage coordination, with introducing the shore instrument, which is basically a kind of Europeanized Kurzarbeit, a scheme with massive financial support. So there are many, many positive um, uh, uh, measures this have, which have been brought forward in the past uh, five years. But um, then the question comes, you know what can the next cycle achieve? Um, is there um, is there still space forward, um, and and what kind of ideas should be brought forward for uh, developing the policy agenda of the next cycle? Oh, I think there are there are a lot, and what is always important is to keep in mind that we cannot talk only about social issues. We always have to talk about social issues together with the economic issues. I think this is really important. So if you talk about, you mentioned it, uh, the twin transformation, this is nothing which, uh, which ends in the next years. This is a task for the next decades, actually, to develop our economies uh, in a climate neutral sense and uh, with uh, shaping them, uh, the world of work with digital issues and AI and, and all these things. And there, we should not forget the social uh, issues. Because uh, shaping the economy in the twin transformation makes something with the people. So it's important to really uh, help the people um, making this transformation and developing this transformation and not getting lost by the transformation of the economy. So I think a social framework for really uh, for the uh, social framework for the twin transformation is really important. This is one thing. Another thing is economic crises. We have experienced so many economic crises, and what we have seen in the last crises is that all the European crisis management every time was focusing first and foremost on the economic issues. Of course, it's an economic crisis, but every economic crisis and every crisis management produces. Um, social outcomes, not always good, often bad. And therefore, it's so important that we have crisis instruments, economic crisis instruments to prevent crises. But when the crisis is there, for example, asymmetric shocks hitting the European Union, where monetary uh, policy is not able to really react good, to have fiscal stabilizers like a European unemployment insurance, for example, and to look at the impact for the social affairs, to look at the impact for employment, for unemployment, for poverty uh, uh, and educational things. Some of these things have been forgotten in the last crisis. We learned from the euro crisis and the austerity regime. Uh, the COVID-19 crisis management was much better. You mentioned SURE and the Next Generation EU because it has some sort of social indicators uh, in. It was not, uh, it didn't have a blind eye on, on social things. Nevertheless, uh, everybody said this is only temporary, only for this crisis. So I fear the next economic crisis, which will come, that's for sure, somewhere, somehow. Um, and with the next economic crisis, there is again this decision, should we do austerity or should we do something again like this more solidaric, uh, solidaristic approach uh, like we have seen in, in COVID-19? And then another thing is uh, a bit more general. A third thing that would be um, uh, social convergence. This is a goal of the European Union and it's written in the treaties. And convergence we cannot reach only in economic terms. 
like Jacques Delors said, you cannot fall in love with a single market. So we need the, going back to the idea of a European social model, of a social dimension of the economic integration. And why not going more back to the idea of brand um, uh, of a, a European social union? Well, thank you so much. Uh, I think uh, we made a full circle in terms of uh, the history, the evolution and a little bit the future of um, the social dimension of the European Union. Um, Professor Bjorn Hecker, thank you so much for coming um, uh, to Brussels and talking um, with me uh, today about your book. I congratulate you once more uh, for delivering this and I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is going to be a great success also in the market uh, because um, it's um, a, a very um, approachable introduction. Uh, but also brings uh, quite a few ideas, just like um, our discussion uh, today. And I also thank our listeners for being with us today. Thank you and goodbye.